Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitlow. And this is Episode 7 in our series for 2016, and today's date is the 18th of March. Leon, we've got a pretty good program this week. What's on it? Well, we've got a terrific interview with Monica Rosenfeld, who runs a company called Wordstorm. A PR company, and she gives some great tips on how to run a business. And then we have a terrific interview with economist Nicholas Gruen, and we're talking, of all things, about the NDIS and the economics of the NDIS, what it needs. It's billions of dollars of federal money, of yeah. course. He says it's a good thing, and it makes economic sense, and we just have to wind our way through it. First of all, let's listen to Monica Rosenfeld. Monica Rosenfeld, what are your 10 solutions for business, small business? Yes, well, I've got a few tips. So the first tip I would say is hire slow and fire fast. The reason I say that is it's very hard to determine in a job interview whether this perfect person is going to be the perfect fit for your business. You can only really see that once they're in the job and work within it. So um, I feel it's really important to take that trial period very seriously. Um, And if you have any warning signs within that trial period, either extend it or end it for everyone. The second tip I have is take time out to get a bird's eye view of the business. When you're involved in the day-to-day running of the business, it's really hard to have a clear perspective of where you want to go and what you're trying to achieve. So whether it's sort of taking a day a month to have a blue sky day and just not think about the inner workings of the business or a day a week um, or you work with a business coach, I think that's really important to do when running a business. So that puts me on to my third tip, which is I would suggest employing some sort of business advisor or a business coach because what they do is they take you out of that day-to-day and they show you views that, based on their experience, help with the way you think about your business. And some of the advice they give or the experiences they talk about can be really instrumental in making you do the tweaks to your business that it needs to take it to the next level. The fourth tip I have is learn to delegate to and trust your team. If you're going to build a team around you, there's no point doing it unless you are willing to let go of that control. And sometimes for business owners, it's really hard to trust and let go of that control. But if you don't, you end up with double or triple or quadruple the workload. (laughs) The whole idea of having a team is to be able to delegate tasks so that you can run your business really well, grow it successfully and have some of that time for either a bird's eye view of the business or even a holiday. And I would really strongly suggest you do take holidays. That is proper holidays where you get a complete break from the business. That doesn't mean sitting by the hotel pool and checking your emails and responding to clients all day long. It means switching off from emails, delegating to your team or someone you trust and having a proper holiday because mentally it really clears up a lot of space and gives you the stamina to drive the business forward. The sixth tip I've got is fake it till you make it. You know, we're not born experts and when we start our business on day one, sometimes we're a little bit uncomfortable about saying, that we can deliver the sorts of things that we can deliver. But you've started a business because you know you can do it and you have that confidence and you've taken that leap. So 
even if you don't have concrete examples of where you've done it before, just fake it till you make it. Exude that confidence, show potential clients that you're an expert and then make it work. The other thing is creating an office culture that appeals to you. You know, why have you started your business in the first place? Well, it's probably to create an environment that you can enjoy every day that totally resonates with your passion, with your interests and with your personality. And when clients come to your office and meet your team, it's all of these things that will shine and make you different from your competitors. So, you know, if you're a more relaxed person, create that kind of culture in your office. If you, you know, really want to do great things for businesses and organizations, you know, um, have a policy where you work, take on a pro bono client. Just incorporate your personality into your office culture because that's what's going to sell you um, to your clients. Number eight and very important is finding solutions to manage cash flow. You know, there are a whole range of creative ways you can work with money to give you that cash flow because if you don't have cash flow right, your business isn't going to last. So it's really important to find those resources, whether it's through a mortgage or, you know, other other ways that you're business advisor can probably help you with to manage cash flow and make sure that you've projected properly and that you've got it all under control. Number nine is being prepared to adapt. You know, um, we're living in a time of change at the moment and industries are changing all the time and technology has thrown a whole new thing into the works and it's really important to be able to adapt to change. So in the PR industry, for instance, you know, we have to work a lot more with online media. Um, we have to stay in touch with what journals are doing, not just in the traditional media and printed space, but online and, and, and beyond. So if we aren't prepared to adapt to that, you know, you can say goodbye business basically. And number 10 is don't take on clients that aren't suitable for your business out of desperation. So keep your overheads low initially so that you don't have this huge pressure and this monster to feed. <laughs> if you're taking on clients that aren't a perfect match for your business, it's going not going to do you any favors in the long run because you won't be delivering the best service and you won't enjoy working with them and that will probably lead to failure in the long run. And they're my 10 tips, really. I take it, I mean, between the lines of all you're saying is that uh, what the business has to do, what the business person has to do is actually work out a way of working on the business as opposed to working in the business. That yes. means they have to step back. That's right. Well, you've started a business for a reason and it's probably not to have another job. Um, if you've started a business, um, it's not a job. It's a business and you can do amazing things with it. So try to remove yourself from that day-to-day -day job side of things so that you can look at the business as a whole um, from a big picture point of view and take it to the places you want to take it. That, that, I mean, that would be easier for some businesses than, than others. I mean, I would imagine a business that set up set itself up as, say, a craft business, uh, which relied very specifically on the skills of the founder, that would be much harder, wouldn't it? Um, it could be, um, but 
no matter what industry you're in, there are always people out there who can do work just like you. Um, but I, I guess what you're saying, if you're an artist and that's your business, then no one can do art exactly the way you do it. And that's true. But even if you're a one-man band and want to keep it that way, that's absolutely fine. But you need to have the perspective of, okay, why have you started the business? What are you wanting to do with it? Where is it going? Whether you keep it small or big or whatever you're doing so that you can plan and and create a lifestyle that, that you really want in your life. So that would uh, suggest you would have to become much better at delegating, much better at uh, bringing advisors. Absolutely. I, I, you know, particularly if you're a one-man band or one woman band, um, I would say the best thing to do would be outsourcing aspects of the business that you're not comfortable with. So if you're spending a day wasted on bookkeeping when you hate bookkeeping, will never like it and don't understand it and can't get your head around it, you, you know, that's actually precious time when you can be creating that artwork or, or whatever your business is and selling and making more money. So outsource to experts or put a team around you who can um, fulfil some of the functions you need to fulfil. And that, would, that could apply to any size business? Yes, really any size, whether you're a one person and you want to stay that way or whether you've got a staff of 300 or 500. It's really the same. We all started business for a reason. Usually the reason is to create the kind of lifestyle we want. Now that lifestyle could be being a true entrepreneur and just taking advantage of lots and lots of opportunities, that's fine. Or it could be that you want to spend more time with the family and want to keep it small scale. But whatever it is, the basic principles apply. And I think the 10 tips do relate to all sizes. Every business looking at establishing itself has to actually look at those 10 tips. I think so. I mean, look, I've been in business for 15 years and I really looked back and thought, what are the key lessons that I feel that I've learned? Um, and, and these 10 tips are sort of all the lessons that I've really learned over the years. And I'm sure there's another 10, <laughs> but these are the most important ones that I feel made a really big impact to my enjoyment of the business and my ability to create the business that I really want to, um, that gives me the lifestyle I want. Monica Rosenfeld, thank you very much for your time. No problem. Thanks for having me. Well, Monica's been in the business a long time. She's pretty wise in these matters, so I think all of that's pretty good advice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And now Nick Gruen and the NDIS, which is much more far-reaching than a lot of people believe. Nicholas Gruen, uh, the government's about to implement the uh, NDIS and there's been inquiry into it. What's your view about it? Uh, well, they're claiming to be implementing it. They've been working on it for a while. Uh, I, I kind of always thought I put it in a category which was something that I had a sort of a summary view of, which was it must be a good thing because uh, we're spending money on some of the people in our society who need it most, and that makes sense. It makes economic sense if you think of money as a means to an end. That end is a better life for us all. And if you can take a bit of money off people who don't need it very much and get it to people who really do, then that's uh, an efficiency gain in my book. So that was an in-principle view I had before I looked at the scheme. I've been involved in the NDIS now, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, through my chairmanship of TAXI, the Australian Centre for Social Innovation. And we've done some fairly substantial consulting to them 
and looking at the way in which they're building their service systems and so on. And so I thought I'd better learn more about this. And I went and read the original Productivity Commission, which was an important part of the process of getting to where we are. And I must say, I'm often not all that impressed with uh, commission reports because they're not very, um, they're pretty preoccupied with their own consistency with past reports, I suppose, which sometimes makes it hard to think new thoughts and to explore new terrain. But I was just incredibly impressed with this report. It was my idea of what economics should be about, which is simple, powerful. Uh, The ideas in economics are very simple. That's both a feature. It's also a bug when people misuse them. But uh, I thought the uh, the way the report wrote these issues up including the point that I've just made, that money is a means to an end, it isn't the end of economic activity, was uh, really very impressive. There have been some criticisms of the way it's uh, done, like uh, certain people are saying there are inconsistencies, some are saying they're not getting uh, the right sort of care when others in similar circumstances aren't are getting it. Yeah, so I, I'm glad I'm not a politician <laughs> because a politician has to answer that sort of question with, well... You know, it's all with a kind of a cliche, which is, you know, that, that's been a problem. We're solving that problem. I expect the sort of thing you've just said will be sayable, not just throughout the implementation of the, of the scheme, but forever. Uh, it will involve the expenditure of, uh, I think it's currently budgeted at $22 billion a year. And, and some people say it should be being budgeted at $25 billion a year. And if there aren't snafus, if there aren't issues like that, well, I'll be pretty surprised. The question is, can we roll out on that scale a scheme on that scale, which is nevertheless focused mostly on the interests and perspectives of the people it's supposed to be helping the disabled rather than the professionals who deliver the scheme, uh, the bureaucrats who administer the scheme. That's the real test. And at least, I mean, all I'll say is the whole way it's been set up is to try and do that. Will it, will it do it as well as it w- I'd like? No, it won't. We're trying for something much better and as is the as is the the norm in those circumstances, there will no doubt be things people can point to that are disappointing, unfair, and all the rest of it. But it, I'm pretty confident, it's got to be a lot better than what we've got now. There are major concerns. I mean, um, Queensland, for example, is slowing down the NDIS rollout because the funding is falling short. Yes, and it might be the case that it's a good thing to slow down the rollout. Uh, As somebody pretty senior in the NDIS said to me, we're trying to do a 10-year project in three years. And and I'm not really presenting myself as an expert on the detail. I'm not. And as I say, you, you won't be able to surprise me with any story about some bad thing that's happening. And, it, you know, we also have to keep in mind that maybe this is a big adventure that's a big, you know, just a big disaster. I don't think it will be, but simply being able to point out some things, indeed some big things, don't look very good. Well, there are two questions about that. One is, do they look better than they did? So that would be a good thing. And how much better can we make them? And I'm sure we can make some things uh, better. This is a we're, we're rolling this thing out at breakneck speed. I'm not sure we should really be going that fast. But when you put a politician in front of an idea, 
uh, and they want to go for it, they want to do it quickly. And and again, if the way we debate these things is rational rather than the way we debated, for instance, the fiscal stimulus, where we pointed to all sorts of problems and then said, therefore, it's a disaster when it was nothing of the kind, when it was a major advance, a fantastic policy with a whole lot of bugs in it, which was entirely to be expected in the case of the fiscal stimulus because it had to be done quickly. And in this case, it is being done quickly. You can argue it shouldn't be done that quickly, but if you were disabled, I don't think you would say that. So it will be done. It will be done with plenty of things will go wrong or arguably wrong and we will need to, one thing we really do need to do is to be able to build it in a way that we can admit issues, admit mistakes, admit problems and fix them up as quickly as we can. If we, I'm not sure that we'll do that. We'll see. Time will tell. Uh, one, one of the key issues at the moment is the fight with the states over the sharing, the cost of a national disability insurance scheme. Issues of I mean, how much how much does states pay? You know, it's a it's a sixty forty split with the federal government. How do you see that tracking? Uh, well, it's tracking the way those kinds of things track. What do you expect the Commonwealth to argue, and what do you expect the states to argue? It's it's a negotiation. Uh, everyone's got pressure on them. The politicians have got political pressure on them to do it, and they'd rather somebody else paid for it. Um, so it's tracking the way. You would expect it to track. Australian voters won't really be that keen to be interested in excuses, but but uh, any politician, any bureaucrat, if they can get somebody else to pay for something, they will. Um, and that's you know it's not a not a pretty process, but that's it's it's a healthy process. We we have a we have a federation, and as messy as it is, the evidence suggests that this kind of arrangement and this kind of messiness is better than a unitary state where somebody sits in the centre and orders everybody else around. Now, now this, the scheme's going to be... There's going to be a massive expansion, uh, I think, from uh, July the 1st. I think 65,000 people are, are joining the scheme in the coming financial year. That's going to give it an overall coverage of 100,000 people. Do we have enough funding for it? I don't know the answer to your question. There is debate about that. In a sense, if we don't have enough funding for it, we make the we write a check and we end up with the funding for it. The much more important question is: is the workforce, and I'll come back to that question about what the workforce should be. Is the workforce up to it? Do we have? Uh, you know, this is the the pink bats problem. I'm not referring so much to the four people who died in the roofs as the way in which prices went through the roof. So that's a big challenge. Um, I don't know enough to tell you what I think about how that's going to be met. But one thing I do think is important to think about, again, it goes back to my point about how the people who set these systems up, the people who deliver the systems, the professionals and the bureaucrats have this way of making it all about them and not all about the people they're trying to help. And I think one of the major ways that we could address those inflationary issues and cost issues is to think much more about the extent to which we could use peer-to-peer -peer services. Uh, so with the, the, uh, particularly, this is well known in mental health that, that uh, mental health services delivered by peers tend to be, and this is a large generalisation which would be different in different areas, but 
the uh, peer-delivered peer services tend to be as efficacious but cheaper than professionally delivered services. I actually think the true picture would be even more favourable to peer-to-peer services because most peer-to-peer services are not run with the same degree of thoughtfulness, intentionality and funding as professional services. And that's one of the things that at the Australian Centre of Social Innovation we've done in the area, of, for instance, of family services. We've set up peer-to-peer mentoring services for troubled families and my view of that is that if you're a troubled family, you're going to, you, it's going to do you a huge amount more benefit to get services from a well-trained but, uh, but peer family compared with a professional. After all, with a peer family, a mentoring family, a lot of the things you need to learn are things that you need to be shown, not told. And the things you need to learn emotionally, you're not going to be learn at all by being told them. You already know most of the things that you're supposed to do, you know, not have a problem gambling or not whack your wife if you get frustrated with her or whatever. And if people are going to change, the best chance you give them is not tell them uh, how to change, but to show them how to change. And you do that through an empathic bond, through somebody else who, to quote Bill Clinton's uh, words, feels your pain, somebody who is like you and someone who can really bond with you and help you through those difficult times. Uh, so I think that's something which we really have barely thought about and which would uh, be could, could be an important avenue for the NDIS to address its own cost inflation issues, but also more powerfully uh, deliver uh, services, more efficacious, not just cheaper services, but actually more efficacious services, services that work better. Well, that's going to be quite a challenge. Uh, Nick Loon, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Nick's pretty keen on that, isn't he? Yes, I think he is. And uh, I, think that's, I think that was really good. Okay, now the news and uh, China's back at the top of the heap again. Yes, yes, indeed, Gary, it is. And uh, uh, figures released out of China on Saturday show that China's industrial production and retail figures sales both slowed in the first two months of the year. And according to the National Bureau of Statistics, industrial output rose 5.4% from a year before, compared with 5.6%, which was a median estimate of economists surveyed by Bloomberg. Retail sales climbed 10.2%, which is falling short of the 11% gain estimated in the Bloomberg survey. Now, this data suggests China's leaders face a big challenge meeting the year's growth target of 65 to 7%. And China's leaders say that's okay, they can get there. But People's Bank of China Governor Zhu Zhutan says, however, that the government will not need any stimulus to meet its target or at least 6.5% growth over the next five years. But at the same time, the value of property sales in the first two months of the year surged 43.6% from a year before. And property sales in mid-sized cities doubled. Prices in Shanghai are up 20%. And in the technology hub of Shenzhen, which is next to Hong Kong, they're up 70%, which to me says all the smart money in China is going into real estate and property and not retail and not industrial production. Which means they've all got the frighteners on. Well, they, they regard that as the best investment. Now, to Australia, and according to Price Waterhouse Coopers, 
Tony Abbott's public ballot on the same-sex marriage, which is now embraced by Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, will cause major social harm and cost the economy more than $500 million in direct expenses and lost production. The publicly funded for and against campaigns will cost $6 per voter based on overseas experience, according to PwC. And in a serious blow to the claimed legitimacy building power of the proposed plebiscite, PwC Australia has estimated the proposal and warned warning that it will do more harm than good, leading to high levels of social tension, discrimination, mental health and mood disorders. They said it will cost taxpayers and business far more than previously understood. It found the plebiscite itself would cost $158 million to stage, not counting the extra $66 million in public funding likely to be committed to promote both the yes and no arguments. And the modelling suggests there'd be another $281 million surrendered from the national economy from lost production as people take the vote. And all up, it comes out to $525 million. If you take the mood of the... Uh population, either they don't care or they're in favour. You know, and the general mood of the population would just want the politicians to do what they're paid to do and make a decision. Yeah, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? Now, Treasurer Scott Morrison at a uh, Australian Financial Review Business Summit flagged that uh, the tax concessions for superannuation will be shaved in the May federal budget, but he gave no detail on those changes. And he also said there wouldn't be personal income tax cuts. He said we can have company tax cuts, but we don't have room to have both. But I think really the the energy in the government is let's get through this election that's coming, uh, let's get a mandate, and then we can do things. Meanwhile, though, uh, Labor and the Greens seem to have scuttled plans to bring the budget forward a week for a double dissolution election. Uh, there's been speculation the budget being given on May 3rd when Parliament's not due to meet, but Labor and the Greens say, no, we're not prepared to do that. Australia's economy is likely to grow more sluggishly in 2016. According to the Westpac Melbourne Institute Leading Index, it fell 0.15 points to 97.07 in February. That's down from 97.22 in January. Now, that's the fourth decline in five months, and that indicates a likely pace of economic activity three to nine months out into the future. So that's not good. Now, interestingly enough, in a massive cabinet backflip, the Turnbull government will bring in an effects test stopping the abuse of market power by big corporations. Now, the effects test, designed to protect farmers and small business, was rejected by Cabinet when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister. And the test, which came out of the Harper Competition Review, strengthens competition laws, stopping companies from taking advantage of their market power. Now, under the effects test, the regulator considers the impact on the market, which is a lower threshold and easier to prove. Now, that proposal, of course, was put forward by the then Small Business Minister Bruce Bilson, but it was rejected by his colleagues, including Malcolm Turnbull. But it was put back on the agenda when Mr Turnbull secured a new coalition agreement with the Nationals following the party room coup. And uh, Turnbull yesterday rejected suggestions he'd opposed the effects test when he was a member of the Abbott cabinet. But the issue is that the Turnbull government has now picked a fight with big business. West Farmers uh, Chief uh, Richard Goyer has come out against it. Uh, business Council of Australia has come out against it. But you've got Ennis Willocks, for example, of the industry group in favour of it. You've certainly got Barnaby Joyce cozying up with Malcolm Turnbull, which is very valuable politically because of the suppliers. And I think if you we're honest about it, that Woolies and Coles have only got themselves to blame if this goes through. What's interesting, though, Gary, politically, is that uh, the Nationals hated Turnbull originally. Originally, yes. Because of his position on climate change. But now that he's buckled in on this, which they had wanted, Mm. they're besties. Yep. Oh, indeed. Indeed they are. Okay, Barnaby's a bit of a wild card, but uh, at the moment it's working. 
Now, uh, Clive Palmer's ailing Townsville Nickel Refinery is expected to be closed until July after the business tycoon turned federal MP blamed the state government for a delay in approvals. The closure of the refinery following 550 workers being sacked last Friday is longer than expected. It could jeopardise its long-term future. Now, in a letter to the Queensland government sent on Monday afternoon, Queensland Nickel Sales Managing Director Clive Mensick, who's Clive Palmer's nephew, said the new company was not in a legal position to open the refinery and he took aim at the Palachi government over the failure to process approvals process late last week and former administrators FTI consulting for not transferring over $10 million into Queensland Nickel Sales accounts. And the result is that the QNS is not in a legal position to operate the refinery or because of the above reasons and doesn't allow know whether it will be in such a position, Mr Mensick said in the letter. The refinery can't be open until all the approvals are granted and the $10 million return to Queensland Nickel Sales and new staff are, are identified and retrained. And he said our projected start update is currently estimated at or around 31st of July 2016. Now, I think the long-term mothballing of this refinery will impact on whether FTI Consultants decides to put the former operating company, Queensland Nickel, into liquidation at next month's creditors meeting, and it's certainly a question of whether it's even going to go ahead. Seems a bit unlikely. I mean, $10 million is not a huge amount of money to argue about. And there's been moves afoot to have uh, Australian Federal Police and the Australian Tax Office investigate Palmer over this. So let's watch that space. Now, um, according to the Actuaries Institute, the federal government has to protect income-poor retirees who want to access equity locked up in their family home because there's concerns that their superannuation or pensions won't be enough to maintain a comfortable life in retirement. Now, they're saying existing legislation should be reworked to make it easier and safer for retirees to boost their retirement income by accessing the equity in their family home. The issue is that once the home is sold, it affects the pension. Their pension is reduced. So, so the discussion paper urges policymakers to consider several options, including stamp duty relief, the flexibility to unlock part of a property's equity, and the introduction of a value cap for the family home under the age pension means tax aimed at wealthy retirees. It also proposes a review of the banking practices that limit providing bridging finance to elderly people to make it easier for them to downsize, and suggests the age pension means tax for home owners be differentiated from that from non-homeowners. Now, it's important because the Organisation for Economic Cooperation Development estimates that Australians aged over 65 have the second highest income poverty rate after Korea out of all the OECD member countries. Now, there's been some fascinating corporate news, Gary. First, Telstra has ended talks with beer giant Sam Miguel to build a new mobile network in the Philippines in a deal that would have seen it invest up to $1 billion. And in a statement to the market, Telstra said talks had ended over the week weekend with the parties unable to reach mutually satisfying commercial arrangements and shareholders had expressed doubts about the risks surrounding the joint venture announced in August 2015. They were very worried. And analysts had estimated it could cost anywhere from $2 billion to $3.5 billion amid possible concerns about overruns and delays. And, uh, with the Philippines deal off the table, Telstra is now likely to be under pressure to return capital shareholders. Another interesting little side thing is uh, Telstra's just hired Stephen Ellop, who used to be the Nokia chief. There's another story here, because Stephen Ellop ran Nokia until it got taken over by Microsoft. And I remember three years ago, people were talking about Stephen Ellop as the candidate most likely to take over from Steve Ballmer. He left Nokia last year when they got a new chief executive, and now he's in the market. So it's interesting that Telstra is bringing him in. Now, he's going to be based in the US and Australia, and he's going to be answering directly to this chief executive, Andy Penn. And he runs strategy, which takes in the uh, technology office and every the chief scientist and innovation and everything. There's two issues here. One is that appointment suggests to me that 
Telstra is positioning itself to become a global technology company. And secondly, it raises questions about Stephen Ellop later becoming a Telstra CEO. Indeed. Who knows? He would be an interesting appointment. But that's, that's a fascinating appointment. Another piece of news is that Flight Centre swooped on a privately owned business in the Netherlands, making its first acquisition in Continental for an undisclosed sum. Now, the acquisition is Flight Centre's first in the continent since it launched in the UK in 1995, expanding to Ireland uh, in 2014 via acquisition. And it's also Flight Centre's third acquisition this financial year following deals in Mexico and Malaysia. And the Dutch company acquired as a small travel agency business travel development, which has a turnover of 10.3 million euro, and it targets the uh, corporate travel market. So that's, uh, that's an area that flight centres getting into. It's very specialised, but it's very lucrative. Now, great piece of news during the week was that e-commerce pioneer Ruslan Kogan is going to bring Dick Smith back to light after purchasing the company's intellectual property for an undisclosed price from Dick Smith's receivers and managers at Ferrier Hodgson. And Dick Smith's online business account for only 8% of total sales, but the website Customers Database and Intellectual Property is going to revive the company with Kogan planned to operate the site as a separate online channel to Kogan.com. So Dick Smith will keep its brand name and Kogan will take control of the acquisition from June. And Kogan says he plans to rebuild consumer trust in Dick Smith and he plans to tap the 1 million existing members in Dick Smith's customer loyalty database to boost sales for both DickSmith.com and Kogan.com. Murray Goldburn will proceed with plans to build a 260 to $300 million state-of-the-art carotid nutritional powders plan in Western Victoria, announcing it to secure strategic supply lines with US-based global pediatric nutrition Nutrition company Mead Johnson Nutrition and Calbee Nutrition N- Nutritionals from Indonesia. Murray Goldburn says the plant will position the company as the nation's as the region's premier producer and supplier of nutritional powder. Now, the Coroit plant represents the biggest investment made in nutritional powder in Australia in a decade. Construction of the plant had committed on Murray Goldburn securing deals with global customers. Now this is interesting because Murray Goldburn's profit had come in under the prospectus because of the sagging milk price. But this is actually putting it in a more value-add section of the market with infant formula. And this is going to really position Murray Goldburn well with the Chinese for supplying infant formula for them. Bonnie babies in Beijing. Finally, after months of being at the centre of competitive bidding by Brookville and QUBE, the Asiano board has finally recommended a formal $9.05 billion takeover bid from a combination of QUBE, Brookfield Infrastructure and a group of investment funds and a binding agreement signed by logistics group QUBE, Brookfield and six international investment funds will see the Port and Rail Group Asiano carved up between the suitors. Q- QBE in Brookfield will buy Asiano's Patrick Container Terminals business for $2.9 billion as part of a joint venture. And they're going to put in robots and stuff like that. And they're going to really make the wharves become ultra-efficient. And as for shareholders, they'll get $9.15 in cash and an interim dividend of $0.13 cents per share payable on March 24th. And then we'll all breathe a sigh of relief that finally it's over. Uh, that's been going on for months. And uh, anyway, and that's it for this week, Gary. Excellent, Leon. That's and you can tune in to us uh, next we- next Thursday, actually. It will be out uh, the day before Good Friday. And uh, next Thursday, we'll be talking to James Law from Envato. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. We look forward to talking to you next week.